You know, I wish I could tell you that if you become a Christian, all your problems will disappear. You'll have no more heartache. Your kids will turn out perfect. You'll never have trouble making ends meet, and everyone will love and respect you. But I can't. I know some preach that kind of message, but Peter never did. In fact, the word suffering, or some form of it, is actually used 21 times in his first epistle. Peter was writing to Christians undergoing the Neronian persecution. Their life was on the line. They were being killed for Christ's sake. Peter, according to tradition, would witness his wife tortured and killed for her faith. And then he himself would be crucified upside down for his refusal to renounce his allegiance to Christ. The early Christians knew what suffering was all about. It really cost them something to be Christians. And Peter's words were a real source of encouragement and promise to them. It's hard for us to identify with what they had to face. There's not one of us who has begun to approach a degree of suffering for the faith they experienced. Sure, we encounter troubles and problems and tragedies in life, just like everyone else. We live in a sin-corrupted and dominated world, and we are going to suffer the consequences of sin in our life, too. In fact, the temporal consequences of stupid decisions and personal sins are seldom removed when we find forgiveness. But that's not what Peter's talking about in his letter. He's talking about suffering that comes to Christians above and beyond the general suffering that the world experiences. He's talking about suffering that comes because you are a Christian. But what suffering have we experienced because we're Christians? I almost feel silly preaching about suffering for the faith today in this place and time. Now, it is true that we occasionally have to pay a price for being Christians. We may actually find ourselves shunned for our faith. We probably won't be invited to some parties, and our co-workers may head out for drinks after work without us. We may even be passed over for promotion because we won't bend the rules and play the game. But that isn't really suffering. And to call it suffering is to demean what the early Christians endured. We don't suffer like the early church did, at least not physically. But we do suffer emotionally. We do go through the same things they went through emotionally. And sometimes it's the emotional pain that's the hardest to bear. I'm sure Jesse Youngme would attest to that. Jesse, as you know, is our missionary in Southeast Asia. 
Jesse has been through all kinds of hardships in service to Christ. He and his family actually spent seven years in the jungle with hundreds of Christians hiding from the communists. You can read all about it in Exodus to a Hidden Valley, a book that's in our library, and I've set it out on the shelf so you can find it real easy. (laughs) What they endured could, without question, be called suffering for Christ's sake. But it wasn't the struggles in the jungle that almost broke Jesse's spirit. It was the conflicts he found between missionaries on the mission field and the way he and his family were treated by some churches in the States. And all too often, it's not the world that causes us pain in the church. It's the church, at least some people, In the church. In fact, most of the heartache we face because we are Christians comes from other Christians. But then again, isn't it always those we're closest to who hurt us the most? You know, David found that to be the case and expressed it powerfully in the psalm we read this morning. He discovered what we've discovered, that the deepest pain and heartache that comes to us because we're believers comes from within the house of God. The world is filled with dog-eat-dog backbiting and competition. And when someone hears the gospel message, a message of love and forgiveness and acceptance, and reads in the Bible how Christians are to love and care for one another and build one another up, and then comes into the church to find that same kind of backbiting and ego-tripping, he's shattered. Now, I don't want to paint a black picture of the church. Some of the most loving, forgiving, accepting people I know are in the church. But hypocrisy and sin always stand out more in the church. We don't expect to find it there. And it catches us off guard. We come to the church expecting all to be perfect, only to find imperfect people. And some who are downright sinful and unrepentant. That's hard to take. And it causes some to lose their faith. They don't find the perfect shelter they expected to find. Well, since that is the source of most of our suffering as Christians, let's read what Peter has to say with that in mind. Now, remember, again, Peter's not talking about the trials of life the consequences of sin that dominate our world and give witness to the fact that this is a fallen world. He's not talking about the struggles everyone faces. He's talking about uniquely Christian suffering that comes to us because we are Christians. Suffering that comes in addition to the normal course of life. He says this in verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, 
which comes upon you for your testing as, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if he begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The first thing Peter says about the suffering we face is don't be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, Jesus never promised us a bed of roses in this life. Only a crown of thorns. When he went to the twelve and sent them out on their first preaching tour, he warned them of the hardships they would endure. When a scribe said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. When James and John talked their mother into asking Jesus to give them the seats of honor in his kingdom, he said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Jesus didn't pull any punches. He didn't gloss anything over. He didn't want anyone coming into the kingdom with false expectations. In fact, he foretold that there would be terrors in the church and that they would remain until he came back. In Matthew 13, we read, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed terrors also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. 
Jesus said the enemy would sow tares among the wheat. So we should expect problems in the kingdom. When someone says they don't come to church because there are hypocrites in it, agree with them. Jesus said they would be there. But he still established the church. And we are still commanded to be a part of it. Now, be careful that you don't assume everyone with whom you have a disagreement in the church is a tear, a weed. Jesus never said we could identify them. And he specifically told us not to try to pull them out. Because we'd take out wheat with the weeds. Now, that's not to suggest that there's no place for discipline in the church when obvious sinful behavior calls for it. But Jesus is the only one who is to judge terrors. And his reapers, the angels, will separate them out of the kingdom when he returns. He wanted us to know that there would be terrors in the church. Holy terrors. Uh, I just had to. (laughs) We shouldn't be surprised when our faith is tested. When we're put through the fire by brethren. Jesus said it would happen. So Peter told us when it happens, we should not think that something strange is happening. In fact, he said, when it happens, we should keep on rejoicing. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. To the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we are to rejoice. But what are the sufferings of Christ? We generally think of his physical pain and suffering, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the spikes, the cross. But his suffering went far beyond the physical. He was the son of God, the creator of the universe. And how did his creation respond to him? They rejected him. They accused him of being in league with the devil. They spit upon him. They humiliated him. His own disciples disappointed him over and over again. They misunderstood him. They forsook him and even betrayed him. In the end, He had no one to turn to but his Father in heaven. He was alone at the moment of his greatest need. The people of God had failed him. If you've been in the church any length of time at all, you've probably shared in that suffering of Christ. The people of God have failed you. In fact, They were all too often the ones who caused you pain. In spite of that, Peter says, keep on rejoicing. 
Because if you do, one day you'll rejoice with exultation. We can rejoice in less than perfect situations as long as we know the situation is going to get better. And someday the church will be perfect. The kingdom of God will be purified. No one will question your motives or gossip about you or trample on your feelings anymore. No one will hurt you intentionally or unintentionally. Just knowing that day is coming enables us to rejoice today. Besides, no one can rob us of the joy we found in Christ if that joy is truly grounded in Him. And if we're living as Jesus lived, we better expect to be treated as He was treated Let's just make sure that we are living as he lived, that we haven't brought upon ourselves the problems we're facing and the conflicts we're experiencing. Make sure your behavior in the church glorifies God. Peter continues, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. Peter is basically saying, make sure your suffering isn't the result of your own sinful behavior. Don't bring it upon yourself by being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Now, lest we skip over murderer, thief, and evildoer too quickly, we do need to realize that we can murder someone by slandering them, rob them by taking the glory or honor that should be theirs, And that there are lots of things that fall under the heading of evil doing. And to be quite honest, it's easier to fall into that last category, troublesome meddler, than we might think. Peter may have actually coined that word himself. It's found nowhere else in Greek literature. It literally means one who oversees others' affairs. Peter is saying we are not to stick our noses in where they're not wanted. We're not to be troublesome meddlers in other people's affairs. And how easy it is for us to do that in the church. It's hard to keep quiet. When we see people we care about making poor choices. But if our opinion isn't sought, it probably shouldn't be offered. Now, we should be there to help and to offer suggestions when they're asked for. And we need to make sure that our brothers and sisters know we are available to help them in their times of need. 
And of course, we do intercede if we see a brother falling into habitual sinful behavior. But we are not to be troublesome meddlers in everyone's affairs. C.S. Lewis has written an interesting tongue-in-cheek epitaph. Erected by her sorrowing brothers in memory of Martha Clay. Here lies one who lived for others. Now she has peace. And so have they. (laughs) We've got to be careful that our rejection and suffering isn't brought on by our own sinful and obnoxious behavior. But if we are doing what Christ told us to do, we have no reason to be ashamed or feel guilty when others don't like us or talk about us. In fact, we should expect it. And if we are reviled for the name of Christ, the Spirit of God and His glory will be present in our life and we can have a sense of peace about the situation. We can even glorify God in it. Lastly, Peter reminds us not to forget that all of this is part of God's plan for us. And it's an expression of judgment against sin. So through it all, let's keep on trusting. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if he begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When the suffering starts to get to us, we need to remember that we aren't perfect. Instead of asking, why me? Maybe we should be asking, why not me? Surely, we aren't any better than Christ. (laughs) And he suffered. So we should expect it. And Peter points out something else about the suffering we go through as Christians. He basically asked the question, if the righteous have to suffer now, what's the judgment of the ungodly going to be like? If sin still has to be judged in our life, and God still has to purify and test and mature us, what's going to happen to those who haven't repented of their sins? Our testing and suffering should serve as a warning to others. F.B. Myers, a great preacher of the past generation, illustrated this truth with a following anecdote. It was the earnest wish of a holy man that his death might be so triumphant that his unconverted sons might be convinced and attracted by the evident power of the gospel to sustain and cheer in the dark passage of the valley. Instead of this, to his deep regret, 
His spirit lay under a cloud. He was oppressed with fear and misgiving. And the enemy was permitted to torment him to the utmost. But these very facts were the ones which most profoundly impressed his children. For, said the eldest, we all know what a good man our father was. And yet see how deep his spiritual sufferings were. What then may we not expect who have given no thought to the concerns of our souls? Don't let your suffering bring you to despair. God can use it to his glory and to bring others into the kingdom, whether you handle it right or not. Just trust him. God's will is being worked out in our life. If we've joined ourselves to him. And it's not our place to understand everything God does. But we are to trust him. Trust that he knows what he's doing. And rejoice over the fact that he counts us worthy to suffer as did his son. So if you commit yourselves to God, you're not guaranteed endless bliss and perfection, at least not now, even in the church. But you can have confidence that God's will is being done in your life. And that the suffering you endure now is nothing compared with the suffering that those who reject God will experience later. And even more than that, as J.B. Phillips so beautifully paraphrased Romans 8, 18, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. So trust God and do what is right. You will be blessed for it in the long run, and even now, if you realize you have a Savior who's going through everything with you, sustaining you and filling you, with his glory. I can't offer you freedom from pain and suffering today. In fact, if you come to Christ, you will experience additional testing and trials and sufferings. But he'll be with you through it all. And he will work out his perfect will in your life. Perfecting you for an eternity free from pain and sorrow and suffering with him. Preparing you to enter fully into his glory by allowing you to share his sufferings here on earth. So don't let the things of this life, including its sorrows, throw you off course. Determine above everything else 
to seek the things of God and His glory. And commit yourself to being a part of His church, even though it is imperfect. Trust Him and obey Him. No matter the consequences now, because you know what the reward will be later. Let's stand.